You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, rescue operations continue, but the hopes of finding earthquake survivors are fading fast in Turkey and Syria. We'll have the latest. Then... The object was flying at an altitude of uh, 40,000 feet and posed a reasonable threat to the safety of civilian flight. Out of an abundance of caution and at the recommendation of the Pentagon, President Biden ordered the military to down the object. The United States shot down yet another unidentified object yesterday, this time over Lake Huron near the Canadian border. Monocle's Washington correspondent will be here to update us on who or what may be behind the mysterious objects. In Cambodia, one of the last remaining independent media outlets has been shut down. We'll be asking what that means. And later, on a slightly more positive note, we have some music news. Fernando is here. Faye, what's this all about? Hello, Tom. Me and Chiara Rimela will give you a little taste on what's to come on Eurovision this year and why the Sanremo Festival was so controversial this year. Thank you, Faye. More from Fernando and Chiara later. All that and more ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. We start in Turkey, where officials have issued more than 100 arrest warrants for architects, contractors and engineers connected with buildings that collapsed in the devastating earthquakes in the country last week. The death toll in Turkey and neighbouring Syria has now passed a scarcely believable 35,000. Well, for more on this, we're joined now by Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith. Good afternoon, Hannah. Uh, Thanks for speaking with us once again. Um, Tell us about this new focus now on... um, arrest warrants for these various practitioners who it seems there's a degree of unanimity about the view that they've failed in their responsibilities to to protect people uh what's the latest yeah absolutely well this is certainly the kind of focus from the government is very much on trying to find some of these constructors uh who who uh built the blocks that collapsed the new blocks particularly there's some really striking images of um blocks which were sold as kind of luxury apartment blocks in Antakya just fell over like an absolute house of cards um as you might expect here in Turkey there are really strong on paper, building regulations to do with earthquake safety. Um, They were really strengthened in 1999 after there was another devastating earthquake here in Izmet. Um, But, you know, everybody is known for a really long time. And, you know, information has come out again and again after smaller earthquakes in Izmir in 2020 and Elazi in 2021 um, about the fact that these regulations are just not being stuck to. There is such a level of corruption in the construction industry in this country, such a level of, you know, people burying their head in the sand about the fact that buildings are not built properly. There's a thing here called uh, the earthquake amnesty, which a lot of local councils do, where basically if you don't build a building up to scratch, that's fine. You can just pay it off and it's all uh, all kind of written off. I mean, there's so many flaws in this system. And, you know, clearly... 
um, you know, the constructors are are some of the people to blame. But I was speaking to a disaster relief expert last night, um, uh, and she was saying, look, there are going to be many, many people to blame. It's constructors, it's the central government, it's also the local municipalities who are responsible for, uh, you know, making sure that you know buildings built before '99 and after '99 are up to scratch. Um, you know, it's 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 not just the constructors, but I think for you know for the government, this is a very very um, you know easy way for them to show that they are doing something because alongside the anger at the constructors, I can tell you that also the anger against the state for their lack of coordinated response um, in the first days after this earthquake and even continuing now has just left people absolutely stunned and absolutely furious. Well, yeah, and I was going to ask you a bit about some of these. Well, I, I guess it is sort of corruption it's and bankruptcy, both on a sort of financial and moral level. Um, we've had this earthquake solidarity tax, which has raised literally yeah. billions. Many people are asking, where has that money uh, gone? I mean, is it, you said already, Hannah, how sort of transparent the sort of fraudulent nature of the system is, but what, what, what's going to happen? Will we get any accountability? What about where all those billions have gone? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is not a new question. Um, you know, the the Izmir earthquake happened in October 2020. Um, you know, it, it, that was also devastating. Nothing on the scale of this, but more than 100 people killed in Izmir. And ever since then, in my neighbourhood in Istanbul, I've been seeing bits of graffiti saying, what's happened to the earthquake tax? Where is it? This was a tax that was meant to be, you know, the insurance to make sure that buildings were... Um, you know, ready for this kind of earthquake to make sure that the emergency response was ready. And, you know, again and again, it's being shown that that response just isn't there. Um, Hannah, on that point, let me ask you about uh, Erdogan. Uh, obviously, huge scrutiny, massive criticism, a big problem politically for him to handle. One interesting thing that I was reading today was that his curbs on the power of the military have hampered aid efforts, by which I mean, if we go back to that 99 quake, which you which you mentioned, the military was right in the forefront, wasn't it, of the yeah. efforts. And obviously, their powers have been restricted quite in a quite a concerted uh, ongoing campaign by Erdogan. And we now have these sort of uh, more uh, civil authorities who handle it. And many have said, look, that has directly compromised the abilities, not just in those critical first 24 hours, but then in the ongoing aid efforts. Do you think there's any substance to that? I think there's absolutely substance to it. I can tell you from what I saw, um, my colleague and I, we reached Karaman Marash at the epicentre on Tuesday. So about 30 hours after the earthquake, there were still no soldiers there at all. There were very few rescue teams. Um, very few police and the police were generally sort of not in the centre of the town, not even sort of gendarmerie controlling the roads. When we got to Antakya the next day, there were a few soldiers. I'm talking sort of rank and file soldiers. There was no organisation of them. You know, there were no sort of officers directing things, nothing. Um, now, again, like this is something that we know we know has been coming. I reported extensively on the forest fires here in, in 2021. And that was something that people are asking then, where's the army? They just did not come. It was left, again, to civilians, sometimes to teenage boys, to fight those fires on their own. And the, the army just did not arrive. And it's happened again. And, you know, I think what we're seeing now is the result of, you know, at this point, nearly seven years since the coup attempt against Erdogan and since he launched this wide scale crackdown on all parts of the state, removing people that he doesn't like, filling those posts with his own cronies, no less than the army. You know, within days from the coup, about half of the generals and admirals have been removed from their posts in the army. They've been filled with people with no experience, 
who just get their jobs because of loyalty. And, you know, I think now we're seeing the results of that. Hannah, I must ask you also about uh, Syria across the border. I mean, people are aware these sort of overlapping catastrophes that have beset that country, the latest in a sort of scarcely believable run of horrendous happenings people there obviously feeling abandoned literally and metaphorically and it's instructive again you know the white helmets there on the ground very effective immediately called for a massive influx of resources nothing arrived um and there's a feeling that had that been addressed more immediately many many more lives hundreds perhaps even thousands could have been saved um what are you hearing uh, in terms of the situation on the ground it's obviously slightly more difficult probably even to to garner the latest information in syria than it is from these the Turkish borderlands, but what are you hearing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my colleague from Times um, went into Syria on Friday. He was part of a small group of journalists who were allowed in by the Turkish government. And he, he said, you know, the, it, clearly, you know, the devastation is huge. It's not on the same scale as in Turkey by any means, but the problem is there's already this humanitarian crisis. Um, so, you know, I mean, you don't have the kind of crowded population centres, but the problem is it just, there were days of wrangling over the, you know, the the politics of getting aid into these areas. Assad saying, well, it has to come through me and you can't come through the Turkish border. I mean, it, it's just incredible. We've been seeing these kind of games played with aid for the past decade in Syria, to be really honest. Um, but, you know, when it, they can't even get over politics when it's a crisis like this. It's, it's just incredible to watch. It, it is truly heartbreaking. Hannah, um, tough for you to cover, but thanks for joining us as always uh, and making sense of the scenes for us. That's Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith. Um, just ticking towards 10 minutes past midday here in London. Let's cross over to Carlotta Rabello. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. Russia says its troops have pushed forward a few kilometres along the front lines in Ukraine, while Kyiv claims its forces have repelled Russian attacks in several areas. One person was killed overnight after Russia shelled Kherson, and damage to train infrastructure has prevented trains from Kyiv and Lviv reaching the city today. The Philippines has accused a China Coast Guard ship of pointing a military-grade laser at its crew aboard a vessel in contested waters off the South China Sea last week. The laser temporarily blinded the crew of the Coast Guard boat, forcing it to retreat. The incident comes six months after Australia accused Beijing of aiming a laser glare towards one of its warplanes off northern Australia. And residents in Auckland, New Zealand, have been told to brace for more heavy rain, flooding and gale-force winds as Cyclone Gabrielle nears the country's coast. Dozens of flights to and from New Zealand have been cancelled, and around 58,000 homes have been left without power. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. Uh, The latest news uh, will be coming your way at uh, 1300 as well here in London. Now to the United States, where yesterday another unidentified object was shot down yesterday, this time over Lake Huron near the Canadian border. It's the fourth such incident to occur in North American airspace in recent days and comes, of course, after a Chinese spy balloon was downed at the beginning of the month. Meanwhile, China has claimed the US has flown balloons into its airspace at least 10 times in the past 12 months. Well, joining us now for an update on all of this is Monocle's Washington correspondent, our own E.T. It's Mr. Christopher Chermak. Chris, good morning <laughs> to you there. Uh, we'll come on to extraterrestrials in, in just a moment. But look, this is no laughing uh, matter. It's an extraordinary sort of acceleration of, of events. Um, just bring us exactly up to speed with what's been going on. 
It, it is pretty extraordinary, uh, Tom, to say the least. Uh, obviously, after the first uh, Chinese uh, spy balloon that you mentioned uh, was downed on February 4th, if you if one of the ways to look at this, if you want to, you know, give give the view of, of the Defense Department, Pentagon officials here is that they sort of adjusted their search parameters for things that are in the sky. They changed the way that they look at the sky, particularly, for example, to look at objects that might be traveling slower, something they maybe didn't do before because, uh, say, you know, you might capture birds or other things that are flying slower. With those adjustments, they have now identified a number of different objects, and there have been three different objects over the last three days here in the United States or North America, I should say, the United States and Canada. The first one shot down over Alaska on Friday, one shot down on Saturday in Canada over the Yukon, and then a fourth one shot down last night over Lake Huron, Michigan. So we've now had three objects, all slightly different from at least the briefings that you get here. They're not the same as those that, as the spy balloon that was shot down the Chinese spy balloon that was shot down the first time, they are smaller. They are flying at lower altitudes. As a result of that, most defense officials here are at least are saying it's not at least the same Chinese program as the other one. It is not the same thing. There have been briefings over the past week before these three were shot down saying China has a widespread surveillance program. They've been surveying about 40 countries with these large air balloons uh, flying around, dating back as far as the Trump administration. This is not that. This is something else. Could it be a different Chinese spy program? Could it be somebody else entirely? Could it be a different country? Could it be private? At this point, we simply don't know. Well, yeah, and I guess, Chris, then what's most instructive is to perhaps look at the semantics, look at some of the language used. Um, and this is where that ET comment, I guess, raises its head. A Pentagon official saying uh, they haven't seen any evidence of any extraterrestrial objects, but that they're not writing anything off, which, of course, invites, well, some comedic reactions, but genuine scrutiny. And it, it sort of piques the interest of various sort of conspiracy theorists. But also, you know, other language, they talk about genuine uh, credible threats to, for example, commercial aircraft. This does seem that the language has shifted, but maybe the actual risk profile has shifted too. Yes, I, th I think that's true. I think the fact, I mean, on the one hand, you could say many, some Pentagon officials and others have stressed that it, this is not the first time that airspace in the U.S. is closed for incidents like this. So it is not entirely new that they will find something in the sky that they have to investigate. But it is very clear that, as I say, they have changed the search parameters. They are scrutinizing the skies more clearly than they were before. And yes, one of the key clear issues here is that the Pentagon is being quite, you know, quiet about exactly what these are. Now, you could see that charitably and say, well, they've just been shot down over the last three days. We need to discover them. We need to we need to find them. They're in they're in difficult to find territories in the Yukon. They're in, they're now in the water in Lake Huron. They need to be recovered first in order to analyze exactly what they are. Until then, of course, it involves 
invites speculation. There are many also in Congress, senators and congressmen who have been on TV urging the White House, urging the Defense Department to be more forthright, to really say absolutely everything that they know in order to avoid this kind of speculation that you're talking about. Because at the end of the day, you know, frankly, Tom, you know this as well as me. This is like the classic reporter's trick, isn't it? When you ask a question, is it aliens? And they say, well, we're not ruling anything out. Your headline the next day is, well, they're not ruling out aliens in the sky. So, but there is some truth to that. They have not ruled anything out. They don't know what it is yet. And until we get any information, there is genuine concern here in the United States that the public is going to draw its own conclusions. And that is part of the problem we're seeing this Monday morning here. Uh, Chris, I don't know any of these reporters' tricks. I don't know what you're alluding to. You have to tell me what, tell me what you mean by that. Look, just, Sorry, just, trade just, secrets. Exactly, really, exactly. Really um, Chris, just, just finally and briefly, this to me smacks a little bit of, well, obviously we have these kind of silly season stories uh, here in the UK, but the stakes are pretty high. Do, do you think this is just a, a bit of a moment and actually in a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, will this sort of you know UFO moment will pass and we'll, we'll not fixate on it anymore? Or do you think that because of the nature of Techi, Sino-US relations uh, and ongoing tensions between Beijing and Washington, that actually maybe this is the new, what you know, one of these new parameters, we're just going to have to get used to talking about it. Well, you know, Tom, I think whether this lasts more than a few weeks depends on a really key question uh, that they have not been able to answer yet. And that is whether the fact that we are now seeing these three new things in the sky is it purely the result of an adjusted search parameter and finding new things that then, you know, perhaps are even private, whatever they might be, but it's simply a case of adjusting search parameters? Or is this part of some special concerted effort by either a country or multiple enemies of the United States to test American airspace, to test North American airspace? That is sort of the key question. If it is the latter, if this is some new concerted effort, as some you know security officials here are speculating at that point, this is only speculation to say it's a concerted effort by somebody. If that kind of information starts to come out as they recover these objects and they reveal that it is a particular country, then this is going to last for much longer because it will be, you know, it'll it'll show that there is something, you know, serious going on here, a different type of surveillance. And then the question becomes, what are they surveilling to what end and so on and so forth. So that really is the question. Is it one thing? Is it one specific strategy? Or is it just multiple things in the sky that we are now discovering because we have learned lessons from a Chinese uh, spy balloon and we therefore have to upgrade our systems, our radar systems and so on, just to detect whatever might be in the sky going forward. Uh, Chris, we will attempt to answer that question, I guess, in the weeks ahead. I'll leave you. You probably do. You need to go and phone home, don't you? I'll leave you to go and do that. That's Monocle's (laughs) Monocle's Chris Jomak in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing here on Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle Brought to you in association with Allianz Partners is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, 
plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. You're with The Briefing on Monocle 24. Now, one of the last remaining independent media outlets in Cambodia has been shut down. The country's Ministry of Information revoked the licence of the West-backed Voice of Democracy radio for broadcasting information it described as slanderous. Well, Monocle's Guy Delorny was a long-time correspondent in Phnom Penh. He left 11 years ago, and he joins us now from his most recent posting in Ljubljana. Um, Guy, good afternoon to you. Thanks for joining us. And let's, yeah, roll the clock back 11 years. Um, what, what was the kind of environment like uh, for a journalist uh, covering stories in, in the region? Uh, sort of re- remind us what the experience was like for you. Well, Cambodia used to have a very diverse media scene, and this is why what's happening now is is not entirely shocking, but it is terribly depressing. Uh, because in 2012, when, when I left Phnom Penh, you had a variety of publications in English language and also in Khmer, plus radio stations like Voice of Democracy, Beehive Radio, that were able to broadcast non-government-approved information to a lot of people in Cambodia. And they were an essential part of, you know, the plurality of what was going on in Cambodia. And one of the reasons why people had a lot of hope that after, you know, 30 years of civil war, genocide and what, for, and what you know, and so forth, that the Cambodia was moving in the right direction, would have a chance to become one of the strongest democracies in Southeast Asia. Instead, in these past 11 years, things have definitely gone backwards. Uh, Voice of Democracy being ordered closed now. But, but prior to that, we've lost the Cambodia Daily, uh, which we had a Khmer language section as well as the... Uh, the main English language section. The Phnom Penh Post was taken over and and more or less made into a government propaganda rag. And, and you know, other forms of media that were around you know, 10, 11 years ago have also gone. So the media scene now is very, very different. Well, yeah, I want to ask you more about that, Guy, and the, the, the sort of price that uh, citizens of the country will pay, because it's not just these compromises on press freedom. There's this broader kind of sense of an assault on the civic realm, the, the public discourse. Um, I mean, it goes without saying that if you restrict those platforms, you diminish the effectiveness of any kind of democratic process. But how concerted has that campaign been? And I guess, you know, you must still be in touch with former colleagues and so forth. How do they chronicle Absolutely. the 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 nature of that change to the public sort of you know the ongoing public discourse in the country well some of it's on twitter for example i mean people both cambodian and also non-cambodians with an interest in cambodia are still commenting on social media about what's going on in the country that's still there but of course you know depending on who you are and where you are in the country you may or may not have access to smartphones your your best way of getting information may well be through radio broadcasts you know the the barriers to entry with radio are much much lower than they are with smartphones even now 
um, in in Cambodia. You know, there's a there's a, a price floor for smartphones, which which doesn't look like it's it's going to be crossed anytime soon in terms of things going lower. So picking up radio broadcasts such as Voice of Democracy was very much valued by a lot of people, particularly in more remote, less metropolitan parts of Cambodia. It made a difference. Now that's not going to be possible, and we're just a few months out from an election. Now, when we look at what happened in the run-up to the last election, um, the main opposition party, the Cambodia National Rescue Party, was banned and with spurious charges about them cooking up some sort of a, a coup with foreign support. You know, this time it seems that uh, we're getting in even with, with reporting. There's going to be so little transparent reporting around the election campaign. The the Cambodian People's Party, which is the party of government and has been for the past, gosh, 25 years, is uh, going to be able to do what it likes. Well, yeah, and that's kind of the inevitable uh, final corollary question, uh, Guy. From your vantage point, obviously you're you're back here covering a different beat for for, for Monocle now, but looking from without, you know, what is the agenda? If we look at Cambodia's uh, leadership, obviously they refuse to accept any apologies from for these supposed transgressions that VOD, for example, made or anyone else. Um, there's obviously, you know, an agenda to consolidate power, to remove any even potential opposition... Do, do, is there a real sense uh, of, of what the sort of political, the social end game is for the current uh, incumbents? The big issue that you've got in Cambodia is there's an entrenched patronage network. So a transfer of power is going to be very, very tricky. Un- unraveling all of that is going to be very hard indeed. Now, in one of the elections since I left, one of the, the first election after I left, the Cambodia National Rescue Party, according to themselves, won it, um, according to the official results, got the most votes that an opposition party had received in Cambodia since 1998. And the Cambodian People's Party had a chance at that point to do some sort of transfer of power, to do some sort of uh, work on unravelling these patronage networks in an orderly fashion. They obviously chose not to do that. They've doubled down on it, and and this is the result. And while in some metrics life in Cambodia is moving forward in terms of health outcomes, in terms of um, the incomes that people enjoy now, in in other words, in other ways, in in terms of the freedoms that they have, it's been going backwards. And, you know, it's hard to see it going forwards if this is the setting the scene for the for the next election. Uh, Guy, always good to chat with you. Thanks very much for your insights. That's Monocle's Guy Delaunay in Ljubljana, but rolling the clock back uh, over a decade to his time in Phnom Penh and explaining what's been happening in Cambodia for us. You're with The Briefing here on Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead from a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Finally, on the programme, San Remo Music Festival, Italy's biggest music contest, and one of the most watched TV broadcasts wrapped up over the weekend. This year's contest was won by Marco Mengoni with his song Due Vite. But beside the song, this year's event will be remembered for other 
controversies. Joining me now for more is both Monaco's Chiara Rimella and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And Chiara, I'll come to you first of all. Tell me about these other headlines, what we saw over the weekend. And for some reason, the uh, head of Italy's public broadcaster has been called upon to resign. What's been happening? Yeah, quite. I mean, as you say, Sanremo is not just a music festival. It's pretty much a completely defining moment in Italian culture for the whole year. It's a week-long televised broadcast that's about music, but it's about society as well. It goes on for ages, for five consecutive nights. The broadcast itself lasts until 2, 3 a.m. every night. There's guests from across the Italian kind of cultural spectrum. And this year, it was, I guess, particularly controversial for a number of reasons. Um, some It started all with a, a famous comedian, uh, Roberto Benigni, also actor and, and director and Oscar winning, um, who delivered a impassioned defense of the constitution and freedom of expression. At the time, it was still quite highbrow. The president of the republic was present, but still that's far right kind of in power was felt quite attacked by this particular approach. Then it continued with um, a defense of the legalization of marijuana on stage with this song called Oi Maria, which is a 90s classic by Articolo 31. Then Fedez, who is a very famous rapper and kind of celebrity in Italy, went on stage and improvised a rap, well, delivered a rap um, that included very pointed attacks towards the far right, holding up a photo of a vice minister dressed in Nazi uh, costume for a kind of party dress, kind of dress up type of occasion um, and ripping this photo, accusing him uh, this of being much worse of other controversies that had been levelled against the festival. Then there was a same-sex kiss uh, and some mimed kind of sexual activity. So the whole thing was completely against a puritanical, conservative, far-right politics uh, that are currently um, at the head of Italian government. Uh, well, Fernando is also here because see you're our nominated, dedicated Eurovision correspondent. We're going to hear the song in a minute, but there is a clear link, isn't there, Faye, to this part of your uh, the part of your job where you cover Eurovision? Explain how this fits into that bigger picture. Well, first of all, I have to say, I personally, I do enjoy a good controversy in a way, <laughs> especially when it's against a far right government. You know, but it is quite shocking, actually, looking at the political side of this. That you know, I, I think Kara would agree that they're even saying, oh, we should change the director uh, of this. This is quite uh, strange. I mean, if it does go through, I mean, it, it's kind of infringing on the on freedom, of, freedom of expression uh, as well. And even Eurovision, I think, to be honest, of course, in Eurovision, you can't have a political song or perhaps overly sexual track. But, you know, you can find ways. Uh, that envelope has been pushed. Hasn't e- exactly. It? I mean, for example, I mean, I will just give you a spoiler here. The Croatian entry this year, there's some generals in makeup. So it's kind of a, perhaps a criticism to authoritarian regimes. I mean, we don't know. It's a fun track. Uh, but I, I love that. Controversies are needed. Uh, and, and, you know, we shouldn't shy away from that. What's quite interesting is that before the festival happened, much of the attention around p- potential controversies uh, gathered around the potential presence of Zelensky at the festival, well, mm. a- of a video address. Then that didn't happen. They only read a letter by him. And that only happened at like 2.15 in the morning on a Friday or a Saturday. So that became much, much smaller a controversy than all this other stuff. And interestingly, now Berlusconi is saying, you know, if I had been prime minister, I wouldn't have spoken to Zelensky like Giorgio Meloni did at the EU summit last week. What I think is quite interesting interesting is that 
more so than Milani being at the EU summit and all the stuff that was happening officially in European circles, what's really been making the headlines and the political scandals this week has been Sanremo, so much more than Milani's antics abroad. Uh, well, obviously, music is nominally at the heart of what goes on at San Remo. And uh, I did mention in the introduction that there was a contest. It was won by Marco Mengoni with Duevita. I think we can hear a little bit of this, Faye. I'll get your insights in a moment. But let's hear a little bit of the winning song. <laughs> Wow. Uh, Chiara, what you, are, you, are you proud to be Italian today? <laughs> Do you know, the most remarkable thing about that song, we didn't hear it in the clip, but there's a bit of the lyrics where he says that you should drink coffee and lemon against a hangover. So that's good, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's helpful. <laughs> I wouldn't expect that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> what I will say about that, what I will, I'm, I'm sure that Fernando will have plenty to say about the value of that song specifically. What I will say about it is that San Remo is such an important moment for Italians that they're, they're not really thinking about Eurovision at all. They're just choosing the ballad that they feel the domestic market is most interested in mm. which is a huge shame because there were other songs in uh, you know the competition which would have done so much better at Eurovision and I really really encourage our listeners to look into Paole Chiara Furore you know incredible slice of proper traditional 90s stuff Cugini di Campagna, a 70s, like, glam rock, crazy falsetto band, which did Lettera 22. Uh, you know, that, that would have been such a huge success at Eurovision. But alas, we're stuck with the ballad. And a, and a bad one at that. Now, Fernando was giving the thumbs up to the, the other artists that Chiara was uh, making. I mean, let's be honest, Faye, and it's, Eurovision is interesting for a whole different set of reasons this year. It's obviously happening here in the UK, but it's Ukraine's hosting nominally. Um, one imagines Marco is not going to be troubling the kind of big uh, decision makers, is he, when it get, when it rolls around later this year? Can I be honest here? Yeah, I don't think it's a winning song, but <laughs> but but I think he will do well. And mm. and looking at the numbers here, uh, I think Italy has been one of the most consistent countries on Eurovision. In the last five years, Italy ended on the top six. Uh, I mean, this is remarkable. So okay. the people they like Italy. I think to be honest, this song I'm sure will end at the top five or top ten. Really, I don't see the winning uh, potential for it. I would be very surprised if it happens. But people like that. But my money's on Spain, actually, this year. Spain, wow, early tip. He's gone early. Uh, guys, fascinating. Thanks for making sense of that for us. That was our Chiara Rimella and Fernando Augusto Pacheco bringing us to the end of today's briefing. A whistle-stop tour produced by Marco Sippi, researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan, and our studio manager was Callum McLean. My thanks to them all. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow noon in London. But from me, Tom Edwards, and all the Monday team, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.